My youngest child is 14 right now, and I can remember when he was born being worried about what the world would be like for him, and what it would be like to raise children now. And I'm sure that many of you had the same response when you had your own children. I'm sure that many of you wondered, what would it be like as your children grew up? Because the world has always had problems, hasn't it? There's always something. If we want to put our focus there, we can always find something in the world to worry about. We can also always find people in the world who are making a difference. And that's one of the things that I loved about the the video that we watched today. It was just a couple of people deciding to make a difference, wasn't it? And they did it so gracefully. And the look on that gentleman's face was priceless. Absolutely priceless. Oh my gosh, I'm in a concert. (laughs) So I saw that look recently on a young man's face. As most of you know, Mark and I were gone last week to the Parliament of the World's Religions. And we arrived in Salt Lake City. It was held here. Um, The Parliament has been around since 1893. But there was a Parliament in 1893, and then a hundred years later, the a new group of people came together and decided they should do the parliament again. And since that time, it's happened every five years. So it's happened in Spain, and it's happened in Africa, and in South Africa, and it's happened in Chicago, and um, the most recent uh, one before this one was in Melbourne, Australia. So it's unique that it was happening. It's the first time in 20 years that it's happened in the United States, and it happened to be in Salt Lake City. So I went, Mark went, Svia went um, separate from us, and Crystal went as well separate from us, and we kind of were passing ships in the night. But the first night that we got there, um, we checked into the hotel, and Mark and I kind of found our way around, found a place for dinner, and the next morning we got up and walked over to the Crystal Palace Convention Center to go to the first day of the Parliament, and as we were walking... On our way, we had crossed just, just in front of the convention center. A young man stopped us. Um, obviously, a young man in need. You could tell by the look on his face. And he stopped us and said, could you help me? And Mark said, which is you know, kind of the way he normally responds, I'd love to, but all I have with me is plastic. And, the, and he said, I don't have any cash on me. And the young man said, I don't want your money. I don't want your money. And he got very, very angry and upset. I don't want your money. I have to catch a bus. My mother is in the hospital in Texas. Um, I have to get on a bus and get to her. I have everything I need except $15. And the bus station is three blocks from here. I don't need you to hand me anything, but if you would come with me and just pay the other $15, I could get to Texas to be with my mom. And Mark said, let's go. And the look on this young man's face changed. And he he stood there for a minute and he said, are you serious? As though he had asked 25 people and nobody had paid any attention. And, um, And Mark said, yeah, let's go. And so I waited for him, and he walked a, a block or so, and then I saw them coming back, and he called me, Mark called me on my cell phone from across the street and said, do you have your debit card with you? 
Yes, I do. So he crossed the street, got my debit card, and in that time found out that there was an ATM across the street um, and went across and, and uh, took $100 out and gave it to the young man and sent him on his way after spending about 20 minutes with him. He, um, what he was explaining to us was that his mother was on life support. And the doctors wanted to take him off life, wanted to take her off life support, and we're not doing that till he got there. Now, is it possible that he took that hundred dollars and walked down the street yeah. and did whatever? Who yeah. knows? Absolutely. Does it matter? No. No, because no. No, he was fully willing to walk to the bus station with Mark, and it was an interesting way to start the Parliament of the World's Religions. Yeah. It was an interesting first thing to have happen. And when you're on that kind of a journey, you pay attention to those things. When you're going to that kind of event, this was a gathering of 10,000 spiritual leaders and spiritual activists from 50 different faith traditions and 80 different countries. And it was massive. It was massive. And so you would think if all of these people of religion came together, that they would want to talk religion. But that's not what they came together to talk about. They came, talk, came together to talk about the world. They came together to talk about war. They came together to talk about violence against women. They came together to talk about economic equality. They came together to talk about global change, global climate conditions. They came together to talk, most importantly, about collaboration. What would happen and what was our our responsibility as spiritual leaders. Who would we be in the world and what would happen as a result of this gathering? And and it was interesting to me. It was a a very cool experience for me to be there knowing that, that Unity's founders, Charles and Myrtle Fillmore, were at the very first parliament in 1893. There's something about that that moves my heart. But I didn't really know why, except it was just kind of a cool idea. So I did a little bit of research. I did some research on the parliament that happened then. And this was the first world's parliament. And there were 7,000 people there. Yeah, it was in Chicago. I thought, eh, 200. You know, first parliament, 200. There were 7,000 people there in 1893 from different faiths all around the world. One of the people who was at that gathering was Swami Vivekananda, and he came from India to teach about Hinduism. And when he came, he didn't know how he could get here, but he didn't have enough money or any Hindu contacts here. So he got to Chicago and then had to find a place to stay. And he counted on by faith that if he was supposed to be there, the divine would make sure that he found a place. And he did, right off the train, because he was dressed in his Indian garb, and someone stopped and asked him a question. And he found a way. When he spoke to the Parliament of the World's Religions, he told a story. And I want to share that story with you. He told the story of a frog who lived in a well. And he said... There was a frog who lived in a well, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, nobody was recording it, but he told a story about a frog in a well, and he said there was a frog who lived in a well and loved his well. 
There was plenty of water. There was a nice big rock in there. He could get out of the water when he wanted to and go back in when he wanted to. The water was the perfect temperature for him. There were plenty of little bugs that flew down into the well and lots of moss and green grass stuff that grew on the inside of the well. All of his needs were met. He believed that he was the most blessed holy frog ever (laughs) because the divine had given him everything he needed. Everything. And his world was perfect until one day another frog jumped in the well. And the frog who came in the well said, oh, well, yes, you have a lovely, a lovely place here, but let me tell you what's outside. Let me tell you there are bodies of water that are so big, you can't see the end of them. That there are other frogs from all kinds of different places. You should come out with me and I'll show you around. And the frog in the well said, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. You just want to get me out of this well so you can come in. I don't believe you. And the Swami said, we of our many faiths are like that frog in the well. That we believe that where we are is so perfect for us, that all of our needs are met, and that we are the the most blessed by the holy to be on the path we're on. And because of that, anybody who tries to tell you this is not the right path is just trying to get you out of your well, out of your perfect place. So he encouraged the people of the parliament to get out of the well and know that their well would be there when they wanted to go, be back, go back. But there's so much more. There's so much more for us to learn from each other. So much more available. And I couldn't help but think about Unity Spiritual Center in the Rockies because that so much more is really our mission, isn't it? Our mission is... Awesome. We are an inclusive spiritual community. We are a microcosm of a world where there are many faiths and many lifestyles and many ways of being, many ways of living, many things to do. And it works pretty well for us for roughly two hours a week. But sometimes it doesn't work as well as we think it does. We have political opinions that go from here to here. We have lifestyles that go from here to here. We know we are of many faiths, but we don't talk very much about it, do we? But we do some good work together. We're feeding kids who are getting to go to school in South Africa. This community raised $1,375 which will feed those kids for about six weeks. Kids who wouldn't get to go to school if we weren't feeding them because their parents send them so they can eat. We're also collecting food and doing a lot of work with Westside Cares for our immediate area, aren't we? We're making a difference for a lot of people who 
are relying on us to help make sure they have food, to help them through the holidays, to collect shampoos and, and um, personal hygiene items that they need. To, there are many, many ways that we're helping our local neighbors. And we're still doing all of that and not getting to know each other very well, are we? I want to change that. But first I want to tell you about something else really cool that happened at the parliament. So there is a religion, the, the name of the religion that the people who participate, we call Sikhs. But they actually pronounce it differently. They pronounce it as Sikh. So they are Sikhs. So that was a, you know, I'm learning. And in India, they say that no one who lives within a 10-mile radius of a temple will ever go hungry. Do you know how many people live in a 10-mile radius of a Sikh temple? Hundreds of thousands. It's not like here. Hundreds of thousands. So in a very small way, that community showed us what was possible. They served lunch every day to about 7,000 of us. And what they did was they made the food at night and they came the next morning and they set the area up and when you eat lunch with them, you sit on the floor unless you're unable. So it's a very equalizing experience. Everyone sits on the floor and they hand you a plate and there are long lines of people. And everyone comes through and they fill your plate with food that you would pay a lot of money for. If you went out to eat Indian food, it was, this is not the soup kitchen line. This is not the cheap food line. This is quality, really amazing, amazing food that they prepared for us. What was so spectacular is the way they did it, that they greeted us with such joy that we were there. It meant everything to them that we were there that they could be in service as though it was their most noble cause to make sure we were fed. And they greeted us with joy and happiness and showed us where to take our shoes off. We had to cover our heads. They had little scarves all set for us and put them on. Everyone you talked to had, they just glowed. They were just amazingly pleased to be of service. And they would go through the line. You couldn't keep up with how many times they offered you food. Would you like more? How much? Eat as much as you want. And when they were done at the end of the day, they had 600 pounds of food left they took out into the community to feed the community. They wanted to feed all of Salt Lake City. And the city said, we don't really have a place to do that. (laughs) So we went to the lunch and Mark came back and said, I really want to volunteer which you can do. So he went and spent a day volunteering. And um, I did other things during that day. And he was glowing when he came out of there and said they were just as much fun as they could possibly be, that he had a great time. And, And so later on in that day, I had the opportunity, there was an area, kind of an exhibit hall, where you could go and find out about different faiths and they had different information. And I got to go to the counter where the six were, And I said to this gentleman who incidentally had been on the bus with us from the hotel, or from the airport to the hotel, was staying at the same hotel, and then we had run into him almost every day. We had, you know, interacted with him, and he happened to be standing at the counter, and I walked up to him and I said, 
who can we write a letter to? Who do we thank for the gift of this meal? How do we, how do we let somebody know how appreciated it is? And he said, he smiled at me in this beautiful smile, and he said, hmm, just tell God. He'll tell everyone else. <laughs> And I thought, wow, that's perfect, isn't it? And I, I mentioned to him that Mark had volunteered, and he said, oh, you don't need to tell Mark. He, uh, you don't need to tell God. Mark already did that. <laughs> so th- this was a very profound experience for me, this meal, not so much because of the meal, but because of the way in which it was offered. It, this, this event changed things for all of us who attended in ways that we really don't have words to express because the changes that went on were inside of us. There's something that goes on when you're with 10,000 people who are having conversation about real stuff, who aren't just in the same place together, but are talking about the tough part of being alive on the planet right now and how we're going to change it. There was an evening when we had emerging leaders, and these were the kids who were under 35. And um, we had a 1,000 of them. 60% of this conference was women. A 1,000 of the people in attendance were under 35 years old. And we had an emerging leaders plenary session where we all sat and listened to what the kids had to say. There was a 14-year-old girl there who spoke before the UN when she was 10. She's part of a native tribe out of Vancouver, and there was a lot of focus on indigenous cultures and how we care for them. And she referred to her generation as generation now. Chokes me up, still does. I cried in the first service. Those words are so powerful. Those words are so powerful because we have those kids here, don't we, generation now, in that building next door. So what are we doing to inspire them, to show them what they are capable of? Are we teaching them that they're generation now? Or are we teaching them that they'll grow up and be able to do something? How would their lives be different if in all of this social work that we're doing, we empowered them? That we actually engaged them, brought them in, had them be part of? How would you be different if you had been empowered to change the world at 14? What would 20 have looked like or 30 or 50? If you had known at a very young age that you could do something that would make the world different. That's what we're going to be up to. We're going to be up to bringing our kids into a more active role in what we're doing around here. We're also going to be up to something different next year. So when Charles and Myrtle came home from the parliament, they were different people. We became a a, a movement that brought both Eastern and Western philosophy together because they were deeply affected by the things they had learned from people of other faiths. And Charles and Myrtle studied many different faiths, but they never left the country. In fact, they rarely left Kansas. But they studied and they learned and they looked for the best outside their well, didn't they? And they brought it all back. So in the next year, we're going to look outside of our well 
And here's what I'm proposing we do in 2016. I'm proposing that in the month of January, we spend a full 30 days making sure we really know our unity stuff. What are the basic things we believe? Really making sure that we're solid in our own faith's teachings. And then in the month of February, my suggestion is that we're going to form credo groups, creed groups, and that we're going to work on what is our personal creed. In other words, you know what unity teaches. What do you really believe? Could you voice it? Could you talk about it? Could you really get clear on what it is and have a conversation with somebody about your personal beliefs? And then beginning in March, we're going to hold citywide interfaith cafes. And we're going to invite other communities to come and join us. And we're going to have interfaith conversations here one night a month where people can come and sit in a facilitated conversation and discuss issues of the world. We're going to learn interfaith dialogue and we're going to practice it. We're going to practice it with each other first and then we're going to practice it with the greater community. And we're going to learn how we can do more than be in the same room and be different. How we can really collaborate and make the world a better place. We're going to culminate that experience in September or October of next year. When I got back, I wrote a letter to Brian Coriel, who is the, or Bruce Coriel, who is the head chaplain at CC, to Jeff Scholes, who heads the Center for Religious and Public Life at UCCS, and to Richard Trussell, who's the director of philosophy and religion for Pikes Peak Community College, and said, can we do a neutral ground symposium and bring keynote speakers in and do an event that celebrates the interfaith capacity of our city. And all three of them within 24 hours wrote back and said yes. So we're going to move in our community, involve people all year long, and then bring them all together around change here in our city over the next year. Anybody want to play? Okay. This is what collaboration is. When the, when the Fillmores came back, they were changed by what they experienced. I know that if you talk with Z or you talk with Crystal, certainly if you talk with Mark, I know they will all tell you that we were all changed by this experience. And I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to be a way to have it. And I want to tell you it is my absolute commitment to bring it back home and make it useful and beneficial for our community. So I want to start that with a few quotes. And these are quotes on collaboration. Thomas Stahlkamp said, The secret is to gang up on the problem rather than each other. (laughs) Freeman Thomas said, Good design begins with honesty, asks tough questions, comes from collaboration and from trusting your intuition. Edwin Land said, politeness is the poison of collaboration. Amy Poehler said, as you navigate through the rest of your life, be open to collaboration. Other people and other people's ideas are often better than your own. Find a group of people who challenge and inspire you. Spend a lot of time with them, and that will change your life. 
And H.E. Luckock said, no one can whistle a symphony. It takes a whole orchestra to play. <laughs> 